danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 331 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from very summery Melrose, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis and with me from Owings Mills, Maryland, it's Andrew Brokus. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Life is great. Life is Good. great. It's uh, July 1st as we're recording it. Uh, New Year's Day is my favorite holiday of the year and this is like a, a demi New Year's Day. And, uh, <laughs> I like July. I'm in my yearly reread of The Great Gatsby, and I'm just a happy person. I'm just a happy person. Nice. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward. So obviously, usually this time of year, um, I would be in Las Vegas getting ready for the uh, main event of the World Series of Poker. So that's uh, a disappointment. I, I do not intend to play the online event for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, one of the things that I've gotten to do in Vegas the last couple of years is live with Darrow Carney. You know, he and I have shared a house, usually with a few other people as well, for the last uh, three years. So I um, have not had my yearly dose of Dara, but um, we will be interviewing him tomorrow night. So we don't actually know the content of the interview yet, but um, it's going to be good with Dara. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that is it is kind of a bummer. Uh, just you know, realizing this is the time of year. I, I don't even miss the poker exactly. I mean, I'm definitely going to miss the main event. Um, there's thing, you know, I get these like reminder. Oh, this is what you were doing this time last year. You know, kind of reminders from social media. And um, but a lot of you know, just like I'm not going to see Carlos. That's a huge bummer. Uh, there's just a lot of people where I mean, I mean Carlos and Dara at least. You know, I'll talk to them one way or the other. It's better to see them in person. But there's so many other people where you know I'm 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 not really going to have an excuse to talk to them otherwise. But it's nice running into them at summer camp. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a little bit different because there's a good chance I wouldn't be making it out there anyway. Uh, but I do miss it. You know, I miss it, and just the whole ridiculous spectacle of it all, and. Um, Man, the Gold Coast, that like wonderful and ever so slightly grimy place that I love. Um, I do miss the Gold Coast. <laughs> the food, oh man, the Chinese food. It's, it's <laughs> just noodle exchange. It's, um, you know, nothing against Ping Pang Pong. I like it a lot, but uh, I'm a noodle exchange man. So, but, but that is that. And, uh, as you know, never mind that I'm not actually being caused to miss it because of COVID. Uh, but out of all the hardships that COVID can cause, not 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 the greatest, not the greatest. sure. But poker-wise, it's uh, it's a significant one. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's one of the really big reminders that you know, life is just very different. Life is just very different, and um, yeah, so. May you enjoy whatever else you're doing uh, instead of bumming around Las Vegas, everyone. 
I, uh, I can't promise it's going to be as fun as the World Series of Poker, but if you want a little bit of a poker hit, I certainly would encourage you to pick up uh, the new Play Optimal Poker 2, which focuses on range construction, or if you have not read the original Play Optimal Poker yet, to pick up the original Play Optimal Poker. Uh, the original actually is available for just $9.99 in ebook format from either Amazon or knitcast.com n-i-t-c-a-s-t.com and the new book also is available from both of those places Uh, paperback is available only at amazon and uh, ebook you can get from either amazon or knitcast.com a ton of work went into that book um a lot of it you know it was coming right off of my deep run in the main event last year and i was very sort of excited and i felt like i had learned some new things about poker or at least was like thinking some new things about poker and i wanted to test some of those out working with solvers and then in doing that i kind of discovered a bunch of uh new stuff and i just had like a lot it was like the most excited about poker i'd been in a while obviously after like running deep in the main event uh so i had a lot of like kind of intense uh poker thoughts going through my head that kind of became the basis for playoff optimal poker too or at least the kind of starting point for the research that led to play optimal poker too uh, and yeah i hope folks will uh get at least a, a sort of secondary jolt of wsap main event vitality from reading it excellent um strategy today this was actually a question that somebody DM'd you on Twitter, but I thought was a, a fantastic question and something I've been looking forward to discussing with you. Um, this person said, hey, Nate, big fan of the podcast and recently started listening to the Weekend Warrior podcasts, which are also available at nickcast.com. I had a question regarding something you guys mentioned about fighting for blinds and dead money versus just folding until you get a big hand. This really resonated with me as I feel like I'm guilty of the latter way too much and I play closer to a passive fish, scared to stick it in at any time unless I think I'm good. With the former, meaning fighting for blinds and dead money, uh, do you guys mean being more loose and aggressive to try to win blinds and dead money in marginal spots or just being more aggressive with solid hands to try to take it down pre-flop when there's more dead money in the pot? I'm new to live poker and found myself in a bunch of spots with an okay hand multi-way that I didn't know how to play. Uh, It's a big question there, but do you want to take a a first crack at it? Mm. I mean... I would actually rather you say the first thing because sure. uh, I've got a lot of stuff swimming in my head and I think it would be better <laughs> if you focus the conversation a little bit first. Okay, so I, I like actually the way that he, he frames this question. I think it's not necessarily an either or of... Um, you know, so he frames it as like, you know, should I be more loose and aggressive or just be more aggressive with solid hands? I mean, I think it is both. Uh, I do think a lot of people underestimate the value of fold equity, especially in tournaments, where if you think about, um, I guess a good example is like, you know, someone opens from middle position and you have like ace jack and the hijack. And, you know, it's a bit of a decision whether to call or three bet. I think for a lot of people, they don't even consider three betting. They're just like, well, ace jack's not a three betting hand. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call. And um, 
there are a number of factors that could influence whether or not you, you three bet. But one of the reasons to three bet with a hand like that is not necessarily that you think you have some kind of huge equity advantage over the original raiser. Like, you know, obviously, if you have aces, the main reason you're three betting is because you have a really strong hand and you want to make the pot larger. That's not the only reason to three bet. Uh, when you three bet with ace jack, one of the things that you're doing is you're pushing out all those other players behind you, or you're mostly pushing them out. If you just call, there's a fair chance like the button can find a call with a lot of hands and then the big blind's getting a great price, especially once there's antis in the pot and the big blind's often going to call. And now you're playing like a four-way pot with ace-jack offsuit, which is not a hand that does well in a multi-way pot. So when we talk about fold equity, it's not just about can I push the original raiser off of his hand. A lot of fold equity is just getting those other players in the pot out and getting it heads up with the original raiser. So you don't even have to have a hand that's like ahead of the original raiser. You just have to have a hand that's in fine shape against the original raiser. It, it's kind of like semi-bluffing, but in this case, the the like the fold equity is coming from other players, and then you're just like, well, I have you know a, a decently playable hand, and I'd rather play it heads up than in a multi-way pot. So I'm gonna throw that if the original razor folds great even if he doesn't um i'm expecting that i'm gonna have decent equity against him if he four bets i'm gonna feel comfortable folding my hand because you know most of his four betting range dominates me uh and it's not that three betting is super profitable it just has to be somewhat more profitable than calling which is also not super profitable i mean ace jack is just it's not that far ahead of a uh middle position opening range so nothing you do with it is going to be super profitable it's just a question of what is the the more profitable thing to do yeah i would say just a couple things uh first is like even when you fold out a dominated hand some people think that's a really bad thing but like i mean and yes like you're very far ahead but even hot and cold you're not as far ahead as you imagine and you know the the pot does not does not play out hot and cold um, moreover you know something we've mentioned on the air a lot is that even if you take it down preflop like with a hand like aces um you usually aren't winning at, it, like it's usually not a bad thing for you like like it feels like you win tons and tons of money with in expectation and you do win a lot of money with your big pairs but maybe not as much as you think you do and uh, especially in tournaments people just really underestimate how good it is to take down the pot pre-flop relative to the other things that could be happening yeah and, and with those big pairs um especially when you're somewhat deep you know if you have say like 50 big blinds your big pair even pocket aces you know of course it, it's the nuts pre-flop if you see the flop with a somewhat high stack to pie ratio which you know if you start with 40 big blinds you might be seeing the flop with a stack to pie ratio of like eight aces is not that special anymore i mean it's still a good hand but it's not often a hand where you're going to be excited about playing for your stack and in fact you know aces is a big favorite against something like eight seven suited before the flop after the flop eight seven suited may well play better than aces i don't mean that it makes more money i mean that um if those two hands are up against each other after the flop, there's a fair chance that the 8-7 suited makes better decisions uh, because the pocket aces, with, with deeper stacks, the pocket aces are typically a, a marginal hand for people who uh, have, have read Play Optimal Poker. They're kind of like a king in the ace-king-queen game. They're a hand that, um, if the pot gets large, they're kind of just a bluff catcher or they're, you know, they're, they're a hand that is ahead of like the weaker hands in your opponent's range, but often losing to some of the stronger hands your opponent is representing. 
Whereas eight seven suited is the kind of hand that can uh, often will get to bet as part of a polarized range. Uh, you know, sometimes eight seven suited makes something really strong, like a straight or a flush or two pair or whatever, and it can be kind of hard for aces to get away in those circumstances. Other times, eight seven suited just you know makes a semi bluffing or a, a bluffing hand and ends up putting aces in a difficult spot as a result of playing aggressively. So the value of letting your opponent see the flop with hands like those is not really what you would think it would be with aces, even though you are a big equity favorite. Like, you get that equity pre-flop, whether or not your opponent calls a re-raise. Um, you're not necessarily collecting a whole lot more money from 8-7 suited pre-flop. The kinds of hands that um, are after the flop, I mean, the kinds of hands that aces really does well against are hands that will stand up to a 3-bet. Uh, hands like ace-king, pocket-kings, pocket-queens. And this isn't just true of aces. Like, this is also why you might want a 3-bet, like, Ace Queen, pocket jacks, pocket tens, you know, some some of these hands that are like slightly thin. Like I don't think people really need to be convinced of three bet aces for the most part. But even some like slightly thinner three bets, um, where people might think, like, oh, I don't want to scare my opponents off. I want to keep them in. I want action. You know, the hands that you want action from mostly will stand up to three bets anyway. Uh, so I think like there is a lot of reason to play your strong hands aggressively. There's a lot of reason to play your um, kind of like thinner value hands aggressively. And it's just a sliding scale. So then when you have something like Queen Jack suited. A lot of the arguments for three betting ace jack also apply to Queen Jack suited. Uh, you do value the fold equity you get against players behind you, even though Queen Jack suited is going to play better in a multi way pot than ace jack offsuit does. It still doesn't mean you want the big blind in there realizing his equity. Like it's not good for you, it's just less bad than when you have ace jack offsuit. So you would still rather push out those players, you'd still rather give yourself some fold equity against the original Razor. And like Ace Jack Offsuit, you have a hand that probably you're not hoping that your three back gets called, but your hand should be in fine shape if it is. So when you add together, like what kind of equity does my hand have when called, plus how much does it benefit from fold equity, there's many circumstances where you're going to find a case for three betting something like Queen Jack suited as well. Um, and none of these, I, what I really call bluffs, you know, it's not like you're just three betting with total garbage. It's just recognizing when you have. Um, a hand with decent equity and then evaluating like how much will that hand benefit from fold equity on top of the equity that it's going to have if it does end up playing after the flop. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is that it's easy to conflate a couple of ideas and idea number one, which is very important is that a hand's value or a situation's value at no limit, um, especially when stacks are deep, is driven by how it does in big pots. And the second is that, you know, it's somehow a failure if you're not playing a big pot. So, like, it can be true both that Aces is a good hand because it does well in big pots, you know, like when at least more often than other hands before you know that the flop is like Jack-7-3. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it, it just doesn't follow that, like, when you win, you know, six big blinds with it, it's some kind of failure. Actually, winning six big blinds, I, I don't know off the top of my head what a no-limit win rate with aces is. Uh, but, you know, maybe not 600 big blinds per 100. Um, <laughs> so, like, you've done really well. So, you know, just just because you, you're in a big pot mentality... We, uh, that doesn't mean that something's gone wrong when you take it down pre-flop. And importantly, just because we're talking about all of this, that doesn't mean you can abandon the 
big pot mentality. That doesn't mean you can get in pots willy-nilly uh, with hands that will do really, really badly in big pots later, because that means that those hands are really, really junky, um, because that's just how hand values are at no limit. So distinguish those things. Yeah, and I mean, we've, we've talked about pre-flop examples, but a lot of these same arguments apply after the flop as well. You know, when you have a good but not great hand, there can be reasons. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, are extremely reluctant to raise after the flop. Uh, you know, a, a scenario that comes up so often in tournaments is, you know, late position raises, big blind calls, because, you know, both of those players can do those things with lots of hands. And then we see a flop, and the big blind might flop something really good, like top pair with a bad kicker. And you may not be accustomed to thinking of that as really good, because you're not fully considering like how wide the starting ranges are. So if you're playing, you know, heads up against the the button, you've called from the big blind with like 10-7 suited and the flop is 10-6-3. You have a hand that is like definitely a candidate for check raising. I'm not saying it's a mandatory check raise that it's going to play better as a check raise in all situations, but I mean, it should certainly be a consideration. And I think for a lot of people, it's not. I think a lot of people are just like, well, you know, I don't have two pair or better, so I can't check raise. Uh, I'm just going to call. And it is a hand that it sh- it should, you know, play fine as a check raise, sort of like three betting ace jack preflop. Like it should have okay equity if you check raise and get called. Um, but it also is a hand that benefits from folds. You know, there's a lot of ways that you could end up losing the pot if you just call with 10-7. Uh, the most obvious way is just that your opponent has one or more overcards and they end up catching one of those overcards and then making a bigger pair than yours. Uh, but sometimes the board just gets scary and they successfully bluff you off of your pair. Or the board doesn't get scary, but they kind of hit a sleeper set or something on the turn and you don't realize it and you lose a you know a big pot that way like there's lots of things that can go wrong and i think people don't really consider that they might want some fold equity in that situation nor do they always consider how well the hand might be doing if they do if they do check raise like that you can get called by worse when you check raise there like you don't have to have two pair to check raise your opponent doesn't have to be able to beat top pair to call a check raise in these situations where both players are starting with wide ranges your opponent should be betting lots of stuff on the flop because they value fold equity. You should be check raising somewhat aggressively because you value fold equity. They should be calling the check raise somewhat aggressively because they don't want to give you that fold equity too easily. Uh, you know, and, and that's what we mean when we say fighting for pots. Like that's the kind of stuff. Like both players have incentive to fight for pots. There, the fact that your opponent has incentive to fight for pot, to fight for the pot, is part of what gives you the incentive to check raise a little bit thinner for for value. And also to check raise, you know, semi bluffs, like kind of the equivalent of the queen jack suited three bet pre flop. You know, to check raise stuff like uh, gut shot, backdoor flush draw, potentially live cards. Uh, you know, to, to to look for check raises with those kinds of hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's better than you think in a vacuum, and it also like makes your range just so much tougher to play against. A couple other common misunderstandings related to this. Um, just because you want fold equity doesn't necessarily mean that you um, should make a large bet or raise. In fact, I think often the opposite is true. If you're going to be betting a little bit thinner um, or three betting a little bit thinner or whatever, like the, the more the more polarized your range is, meaning the more that your range just consists of very strong or very weak hands, then it makes more sense to use a very large bet size because your very strong hands are still happy to, you know, even even when the pocket's large, your very strong hands are still going to feel 
good about where they stand and your very weekends are like happy to max out their fold equity and they don't really um, lose anything by strengthening your opponent's range because they're losing no matter what. Uh, the more that you're going to be betting these kind of thin value hands and semi bluffs and, and stuff where the amount of equity you have in the pot is sort of determined by how strong your opponent's hand is. When you make large bets, one of the things that you do is you make your opponent's hand stronger. So if you make a huge three bet with ace jack, you're only going to get called by hands that ace jack is not doing very well against. Whereas if you're, you know, three bet is on the smaller side, now your opponent has a lot of incentive to call with some hands that ace-jack is going to be doing better against. The same thing is true when you check-raise 10-7 on the 10-high flop. If you make a huge check-raise, um, and, and a lot of people will do this, like if there's a flush draw on the board, they'll think, oh, well, there's a draw, so I have to like check-raise huge to charge the draw. Um, your opponent's probably not folding the draw anyway. You're not really an equity favorite against the draw because often your opponent's going to have one or more overcards to your pair anyway. So all that you're doing is making the pot larger and making it more difficult for yourself to play on future streets. You know, when I talked about the fold equity that you might value when you have top pair with a bad kicker, I wasn't talking about draws. I was talking about overcards. I was talking about, you know, a set that might have two outs on you. Like, that's the kind of equity that you're protecting against when you, when you check raise. So you don't need huge raises to accomplish these things just because we're saying fold equity is important doesn't mean um you know you have to make huge huge raises right it, it's a it's a question of cost benefit analysis like yeah you'll get slightly more fold equity when you make a huge better raise but you're also paying more for it the better value is often you know you get a a, a lot of the same fold equity you could get at maybe half the price with a, a smaller better raise yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I mean, in a tournament, there is there are tournament uh, or like variance considerations, which is I think a lot of the reason why people don't want to three bet the ace jack or don't want to check raise with the ten seven is um, it feels like a higher variance thing to to grow the pot. And I don't know. I mean, I guess in some ways it is. I think it's I'm not even entirely sure how to like calculate that because. I mean, it's also like there's also variance involved in like letting the big blind overcall. Like if you call with ace jack and now the big blind gets to overcall, like that also is in some ways increasing. Like it's making less likely that you're going to win the pot, uh, which is really what you want. I mean, ideally what you would do in tournaments is just sort of consistently win small to medium pots without ever really putting yourself at a lot of risk. And when you flat with ace jack, I mean, you do reduce the likelihood that you end up at a lot of risk, you know, by you're not going to play big pots as often, but you're also not going to win small pots as often. So you're not going to get the first part of that equation where you're sort of consistently winning small to medium pots. That's going to happen a lot more if you are making some thinner three bets, some thinner check raises. You're going to be picking up more small to medium pots. Uh, I mean, I think part of the skill is just knowing that you might have to slow down after the fact. Like if you do three bet ace jack and you hit an ace high flop, maybe you don't want a continuation bet um, or, you know, maybe you're going to bet the flop and then check behind the turn. Like there are other ways to pot control besides just not, um, not taking the aggressive action immediately. You know, sometimes you, you take a kind of aggressive action that maybe over represents your hand a little bit and you can compensate that compensate for that by slowing down on a later street. Yeah, that's really good. And like the pots inflated for everyone. Like it's, it's, like the fact that you don't want to play an inflated pot is, you know, it's just as bad for the other guy as for you. And like those pots and those chips that you win when you pick up the pot immediately, those mean just so, so much. And like, again, it's even magnified. Like I can't even tell you how many times like I've seen somebody or I've talked about 
a hand with somebody and they said, oh, somebody raised and I re-raised with aces and they just folded and I didn't get any action. And it's like, you got like four big blinds and <laughs> those are four really valuable big blinds. And if you gotten called, I don't know, maybe not that much better. Uh, so I, I really like yeah, that. When you have aces, three betting is definitely the lower variance thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's good. I mean, we could talk all day, and in other contexts, we have talked almost all day about this stuff. But I think I think that's good for now. And, I'll tell you what, uh, I wrote I wrote a whole damn book about this stuff. I know I plugged it before, but uh, this is very much what Play Optimal Poker Two is about. Um, so if if you're interested in this, like that is a place to hear more about it. Yep, fantastic. All right, so uh, Dara Carney. I don't know whether this is better or worse for runners uh, than it is for people with other hobbies. Probably better than some, worse than others. Yeah, yeah, we're probably, actually, we're probably not that greatly affected. Although I guess some countries had very serious lockdown restrictions where you couldn't go with with, with that without a few miles of your house. So, yeah. but yeah, no effect for me, you. I'm running. Uh, after some injuries, I'm, I, I've, I've, I've switched to kettlebell. I run a little bit, mostly with the stroller. Uh, I discovered about running the following that the better you get, the longer it takes out of your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like other things like, like, like programming computers, it's the opposite. Like, like for every, <laughs> you get better and better and you can do things faster and faster. You can accomplish more in the same amount of time. So between yeah. an Achilles injury and a kid and uh, other major life things, I do run sometimes and I love it, but uh, I will confess that the workout I just finished was uh, kettlebell and not, not running. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing we're running, like uh, speaking as someone who started with the idea that I'll run 10 minutes every day uh, <laughs> in my early thirties. And, and now I do one run a week that takes me five hours. Um, the other thing you'll find also, you're not at this stage yet, but you will find as you get older, it takes even longer to do the same thing. Literally. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's like the other thing is like, it was so like, I don't know. I don't, I didn't take lightly the choice to become like very, very casual about running and to stop like training at it. And when I was making this decision, I was looking around at my life and I was like, well, I think it's correct to replace running with something else. But like, this is, this is it. This is like, if I don't PR the 5k now, like not going to happen in five years. Yeah. Um, and like, there were a lot of things it's like, Oh, that, that, that 10 K PR I just set last week. Like if I don't keep running right now, I'm going to go into the ground with that as my 10 K PR. And like, am I prepared to be done? Like, <laughs> like that's it's going you on know, your tombstone. Nate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's not really tombstone worthy, but, um, it's funny. I'm not, I'm not old but every so often i do get these things where i have to contemplate like like besides ordinary planning like people should plan for their lives all the time but like i bought this big bag of turmeric and i did some <laughs> like 
I did some <laughs> mental math and like assuming turmeric doesn't go bad. I mean, it was such a good deal. I couldn't I couldn't pass it. Out. It was like it was like four bucks for the turmeric, but it was like enough home. where like I, I I did a calculation. It's like like arguably that could be the last bag of turmeric I ever buy. <laughs> it's wild, right? Like Yeah. It's heirloom turmeric. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, it's weird because like I tell the story as if it was yesterday. It was actually like five years ago, and I still have just a a, a bunch of the turmeric out of <laughs> I cook with it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. So so. Yeah, when I was a kid, there were, they used to have these contests where the prize was like a lifetime supply of something, and I always it always used to boggle my mind that like how do they know exactly how much a lifetime supply of something is? I mean, if if a five year old yeah. wins it, it's very different <laughs> from an eighty five year old. Yeah, 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 and it always like it was so dazzling to me because when I heard that, you know, like like instinctively, I just heard like infinite. It's like oh man, yeah. you win. It's it's like Willy Wonka, you know. It's like you win. <laughs> Infinite coffee, you know, it's like the <laughs> yeah, it just, just, just for just, it, it'll rain from the skies. It has no end. And like now, you know, like I get that. It's like, oh, is that, is that better or worse than a hundred bucks? Yeah. So the coronavirus is treating me very well. Uh, I'm completely well adjusted. Don't worry about me. Everything's fine. <laughs> like, yeah, I figured when this broke out, I kind of felt that like the three of us were among the better suited people in the world to to weather this particular storm. Yeah, and add uh, Carlos to that list for sure. Oh my God! Well, Car- no, I mean Carlos is the best. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, this is this is Carlos's moment. Yeah, yeah, he's like. I mean, for a while there, he was like doing everything and quite a bit less likely to get harassed by cops for like just minding his own business in his car, which is like. As I understand it, one of the main hazards of being Carlos. Like, yeah, I can well believe that. Although I, I will say, Dara, um, one of the like more one of the, the more significant or drawbacks that I felt more significantly. Obviously, I don't mean to claim this is one of the more significant drawbacks in the world, but one of the ones that I felt more significantly has been uh, you know not getting to see folks such as yourself in Las Vegas this time oh, of year. Yeah. So yeah, I'm no, very I happy that we're getting that. this opportunity to speak now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's 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 incredible how much I miss that actually. Because um, like a, a few friends, people have asked me if I miss live poker, and the honest is, I honest answer is I don't really miss live poker at all that much. I've always been somebody who preferred online poker, but I really miss uh, meeting people. And I mean, the WSFP in particular, it, it's always a special time of year. That's when you meet all your friends that you just see that time of year. And uh, it is sad that uh, it's not going to happen this year, but. Um, yeah, I mean, normally I'd be rocking up to the big broker's house around now and uh, <laughs> assuming I could, I could find it and didn't show up at some random shopping mall. <laughs> yeah, it's And like, man, there's all these little interactions. I have this vivid, vivid memory that involves both of you. I was, I, I was playing the team tournament with Andrew. I remember I this, yeah. Yeah, and like... I was a little scared, and like you just sort of walked up. It's like, oh, hey, Dara, how's it going? And like you said, oh, Nate, I didn't know you were a snooker fan. And we talked about snooker for a while. Then somebody called me. I just sort of wandered off, and I think I sort of rudely left you in the middle of the conversation. And I'm sorry about that. I felt a little guilty about it ever since. <laughs> well, uh, I have, I, I, I have no, uh, not that I don't have any hard feelings. I have no memory of this even. I just remember the very pleasant interaction. Um, yeah, 
one of yeah. many I've had in Vegas, I have to say. Um, yeah, and it's just like, oh, running into Dara, you know, it's, I don't know, it's 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 great because, like, you know, you meet people from a long way away, and, uh, yeah, no, it was great. I'm also watching a little bit of Snooker lately, so I've actually had that specific. Yeah, at least it's coming back now. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. That was one of the things you do, I, I felt might be the least affected, but uh, obviously just all sports shut down, so, yeah. Yeah. But like snooker, you only need like so few people, and you can actually like have both. Like you could have both people and the the judge official actually, yeah. uh, like all stay six feet away at, at all. Absolutely, time. yeah. And I mean, the judge already, uh, the umpire, whatever you want to call him, he 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 already wears gloves, so it's like yeah. there's no big deal here. He's and he's the one who handles the balls generally. So uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and like they don't have to say much. It's not like they have to tell you. It's like, oh, free ball. Okay, you know, it, yeah, it's fine. Um, also, by the way, if anybody out there like likes snooker, there's this new YouTube channel, Bare Bones Snooker, where they just edit out the time between shots, and it's actually like not just you get more action per minute, but when the shots happen sort of right after each other, you get a a, a much better sense, at least for me, about like how the breaks get put together and how one shot leads and and like why they played them in a certain order. So it's really quite wonderful when I have like, you know, after I'm I'm doing like a Pomodoro thing, after I, uh, you know, like work hard for half an hour, I can watch like a frame of or or, or two of Snooker on on Barebone Snooker. Big fan, big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So... Uh, yeah, no, I miss you. I miss you, Dara. And uh, hopefully the next time in Lo- I'm in Las Vegas, you are too. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Hopefully we'll be all there this time next year. I assume you're playing uh, some of the online WSAP stuff? I'm still on the fence about that. Um, yeah. Like, pretty much the first major tournament that got moved up to online was the Irish Open. And um, there was a bit of controversy in Ireland over it, but most people sort of accepted, well, this is the only way it's going to happen. So they were fine with it. Um, and I mean, most Irish recreations did play it, so there was, you know, decent value in that sense. But also, just almost every online tournament beast in the world played it as well. And the right. the final table ended up being a very different experience from what a live final table would be. And I kind of feel it's going to be the same with the WSP. Like, there's absolutely no reason if you're a high stakes player anywhere in the world that you wouldn't be playing it. Um, and some of them have multiple bullets as well so that that obviously exacerbates the problem um so i think i'm going to take a sort of a wait and see approach see see what the fields look like um i'm, I'm uh, glad to hear you say that because i i chose not to travel you know i i would have to go um i mean i, I guess to play on gg i would have to go internationally but um even to play on the um the wsp.com ones i would need to go to um to Nevada or New Jersey, and I uh, chose not to do that. I mean, I guess a lot of your arguments wouldn't apply to that because the European crushers wouldn't necessarily be on WSAP.com anyway. So actually, maybe you're not relieving my FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking to Jen Shahade a few days ago, and she, she obviously lives pretty near New Jersey, but she said that she wasn't going to uh, to go either. Um, it, there's a chance those particular WSAP events will be very soft because it is just confined to those two states. But on the other hand, I do think quite a lot of players, if they can, will travel there as well. So I don't think they're going to be as soft as people think. Um, yeah, I mean, but, I think a lot of a lot of pros care about winning a WSOP bracelet, and so we're going to travel to play it. I can't imagine that many recreational. I mean, I have seen a that's few. Exactly like, I'm, right, I'm yeah. friends with a fair number of recreational players on Facebook, and like I have seen some people who are talking about going, you know, sharing a house in Vegas and going to play for a bit or something. But I can't imagine that many people are are doing that. 
yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I think that's the real issue. Um, and and from what I understand, the two states in question, New Jersey and Nevada, don't exactly have massive recreational pools anyway. Uh, it's not like if they were running in California or somewhere. So uh, right. No, I've I've thought if if I were going to travel somewhere in the United States to play online poker, it would probably actually be Pennsylvania. Even even while the WSOP is going on, I think I might because Pennsylvania has its own um, online, you know, like .pa, which is separate from uh, yeah. the the other fields. And that's, I think that might actually be the best place if I were, plus it's close to where I am now. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But I have not pulled the trigger on that either. <laughs> <laughs> where are you? You're in um, Maryland um, it, again. Yeah, outside of Baltimore. Yeah. Um, so what have you been, uh, do well, I guess we we'll talk about the book? You just published a book. Sure. Yeah. Uh, published, um, it's, I can never remember the order of the words. <laughs> I think it's called PKO <laughs> poker strategy. Uh, we, 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 we um, I'm, I'm always joking to Barry that we literally come up with the most boring titles imaginable. Uh, that's, that's, that's on him cause he's very, uh, search engine optimized, uh, oriented. So he's like, oh, well, he, we have to get these two words. People really wanted me to call my new book "Play Optimaler," and I, yeah. I mean, I wanted to call it that too. People. But yeah, but I just, I mean, he he convinced me like you just you can't not have poker in the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. I mean, somebody goes on Amazon and they're searching for a book on poker. That's one of the words they're going to put in. So uh, yeah, so we we started working the book pretty much straight after uh, Poker Satellite Strategy. Um, uh, the idea was. One of the one of the motivations behind satellite strategy was the fact that there was so little out there on satellites and similar on PKOs. They're they're a format which have sort of taken uh, at least the European online sites by storm the last few years. And if you go onto any any of the major sites now, Party Stars here in Europe, more than half the tournaments will be uh, PKOs or bounty tournaments. Um, so and yet there's very little content out there and that was down largely to just the strategy not having been worked out perfectly so we started work on the book now it was very different for me because obviously when i wrote satellite strategy i was very very au fait with satellite strategy in general um so it was really just a matter of sort of doing doing a brain dump uh, to to Barry and, and working out what the what the structure and format and what should be included. But with this book, a lot of it was sort of going from first principles and running lots of sims and uh, working the strategy out myself as as we went. So the book ended up taking a lot longer than I thought, um, and certain stuff I believed at the start of the book I didn't believe by the time we got to the end <laughs> of the book. So uh, it's. It's very much sort of a first cut at uh, PKO strategy um, with what I feel even in five or six years will be the most important concepts, the concepts that make the biggest difference to somebody's bottom line if they're playing them. But I completely accept that this is just the first uh, attempt at this and there will be more stuff down the line. Um, and the other thing about uh PKOs or bounty tournaments is their inherently much more complex form of the game uh, than satellites. I mean, satellites are relatively simple. Uh, it's just understanding ICM at the death is really the big skill. With PKOs, there's so much uh, to consider. So many situations are different um, that I think you could probably write a 10,000 page book, which still wouldn't quite be comprehensive. Now, we haven't done that. <laughs> I think our book's about 200 pages, so it's. It, but I think it is the most important 2%, let's say. 
I have some of my own theories, of course, but um, I'd be curious to hear your explanation. Why have these become so popular? Yeah. Or so widely offered, which is maybe not the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think the first reason is just for a lot of recreational players, they're just inherently fun. Uh, the idea that as soon as you knock somebody out of a tournament, you get the instant gratification of a bounty. Um, and that in itself has a sort of a knock-on effect on the strategy where it becomes correct to play a very loose gambling strategy, which again is more fun than uh, if you're playing 10-handed, no anti-poker uh, online in a normal tournament where everybody has to play super tight. So I think that's initially what drove it. Um, as to why the sites are so keen to push them and offer them, I think I actually heard Mason Malmuth on on Thinking Poker recently talking about. Um, I think he was he was referring to stud and how the anti structure in stud determines how much of an edge uh, pros have over amateurs. And if the if the edge is too great, that's actually bad for the ecosystem because the uh, the game will die out quickly as the uh, as the recreations realize that they're just losing their money too fast. I think a lot of the impetus for the online sites when they looked at PKOs was this actually spreads the money around more uh, recreations. You know, okay, they might not cash a tournament, but if they get a bounty, they're getting quarter their buy-in back. If they get two bounties, they're getting half their buy-in back, and so on. So, so their deposits last longer. It's better for the ecosystem overall. I also think that essentially. <coughs> Because the strategy is so different from normal tournaments, in a sense, it was like wiping the slate clean where everybody has to start from scratch again and work out the strategy. Um, and that in itself sort of negates the edge that uh, that, that pros had over amateurs. Um, so I'd say it's a combination of those two facts. The, the sites are very heavily incentivized to offer them because they feel that they're better for the ecosystem overall. Um, and recreational players just tend to enjoy them more. Ironically, most pros I know actually hate them. Uh, they feel, and this tends to be a criticism every time there's a new format uh, from pros <laughs> that, uh, oh, there's no skill involved. This is just all mindless gambling. Uh, and to my mind, that's really just them saying, well, we haven't worked out the strategy yet, so we're assuming there is none. Um, yeah, that seems intuitively crazy to me. Like, I mean, g given exactly what you said, that um, there, the, the situations are so distinct from each other and that idea of kind of like, well, we're starting from scratch. I mean, that, that should benefit the professional player who's going to um, be able to work out the situations better and more quickly than a recreational player. Yeah, you would think so, but I think a lot of pros learn by sort of uh, just by rote. You know, they they develop a certain t uh, a, a bag of tricks and techniques that work in the format that they're in, uh, without necessarily understanding the underlying uh, concepts. I mean, I'm talking about tournament players now. Obviously, it's it's different for cash players, but I do think that's true of tournament players. A lot of tournament players just you know they. They know how they play a screen with 40 big blinds in each seat. They know it's essentially there's no great deep understanding a lot of the time. It's literally just uh, sort of monkey see, monkey do. And then when the when the structure changes, they they they're they're as thrown as anybody else, and and they go on having the same um, same problems as as even recreations would have. I mean, this is true of satellites too. I think as well. I remember a few years ago, um, and of uh, anti when back when they offered uh, anti up tournaments, you'd see a lot of that too. People just had oh, no yeah. idea how to adjust to that. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, and and even very good players. Uh, 
I remember a few years ago when, when satellites were genuinely struggling online and um, Patrick Leonard Pads put up a tweet where he got 20 of the best, um, maybe maybe the best MTT online crushers in the world at the time. And he showed that they were losing over the past year in satellites. Now, I remember that. Yeah, I think I think I think the point he was trying to make that was that satellites were was unbeatable. But when, when I looked at the list of players that were in that twenty group, there were guys who, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, while I would have considered them absolute crushers in a regular tournament, I would have them fish tagged in a satellite because they played <laughs> satellites exactly the same way as as regular tournaments. Um, and I think that's. Uh, it's it's the same thing now with PKOs. A lot of people are going into PKOs. Okay, maybe they know. Okay, I've got to call a little bit wider and try and chase bounties. But there's not too much more. They haven't put too much more thought into it beyond that. And yeah. uh, and as a result, they they feel kind of lost uh, at sea, and they just don't enjoy the experience. No, I, I see a lot of that. Um, not necessarily with with professional players, but I, I do these uh, hand history reviews where people can send me a hand history, and I'll record a video of myself uh, reviewing it. And and some of these people, you know, they won't even flag that it's a PKO. Like I'll realize, and just watching how they play, I'm like, oh wait, is this a PKO? Um, or like they'll just even if they, like, you can just tell they're not. Even if they do realize it's a PKO, or realize it's like significant to tell me that um, they they're just not adjusting very much to it. And I do try to emphasize to them. I'm like, I don't think you appreciate how much you're giving up by playing a PKO and like not considering that it's a PKO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's absolutely massive. Most PKOs now half the prize pool is in the bounties. Um, so it's almost like you, 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 you've entered it, it. It would be almost like if you were playing a, a split pot game where you're only aiming for the high. Um, mm. I, I, I was actually about to, uh, to say that it reminds me of people who, tell me hand so then forget whether they were playing high only or high low (laughs) well it's it's yeah i mean in like not to not to disparage recreational players but like that is like vastly more important than any other detail you don't yeah yeah i do find it funny that like people sort of go to poker tournaments which are intrinsically this kind of you know extremely high variance form of poker and then immediately want to like slice away the variance or they're like how can we make this not just like what if like other people could get prizes too not just the people who've been like that's what makes a poker tournament a poker tournament like you could just play a cash game if you wanted to you know evenly distribute the money yeah 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 that's very true um i don't think we even talked to you go ahead I just want to say, by the way, some of us are old enough. I remember when Deuce to Seven Triple Draw, when that game was like criticized by you know quote unquote top pros as all luck, oh, yeah. no skill. You know, it's, it's just gambling with cards, and and you know, it's a disgrace. It'll be gone, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. I was gonna say, I, I don't think we um we even spoke to you. I, I meant to have you on when the poker uh, when your satellite book came out, but I, I don't think we ever actually ended up doing that uh how has that been received uh satellite strategy went really well um uh, almost scarily well because now uh i think barry's afraid I'm, i think i think every book's going to be like that uh i was really unsure and to be honest my motivation wasn't too much on how the book goes more how the book is received um uh i heard you say this recently on thinking poker too obviously <laughs> there's a number that if you go past that then it becomes a consolation if the book isn't received too well. But <laughs> but a book on poker satellite on satellites is never going to go past that number. So yeah, the book bu- book was incredibly well received um, and sold much better than um, I think most people 
could could have thought possible. I do remember a few years ago talking to a few of the different uh, prominent training sites about the idea of doing some content on satellites, and uh, they pretty much all came back and said satellite is too much of a niche. Uh, there's not enough there to 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 make it worthwhile to make uh, some specific content, and I think that's why there was probably no. I mean, I know Tom McAvoy wrote a book way back in the day, but in the modern era, there was no really a good satellite book out there. Um, so we basically set out to sort of plug that gap and uh, um, aimed very much at a recreational uh, audience as well. And that's uh, it, probably the most heartening thing has been the number of recreational pairs who said that they, they, they read the book it completely opened their eyes to, to satellite strategy, uh, how much there was to it. And uh, they've been doing very, very well in satellites ever since. So... Yes, uh, that that was a really overwhelmingly positive experience for me, um, which is probably why I agreed to do another book with Barry. Um, not that Barry's a unpleasant person to work with, but uh, but there was quite there was a lot more work in the book than I expected to. I mean, initially I did think because it's on satellites, uh, all I have to do is uh, give Barry all my existing content, and he'll make that into a book. And uh, it was a lot more iterative process than that. Um, but I'm glad that it was because the book ended up being a lot better. Uh, I also think the book is a lot better than had I done it on my own um, because essentially Barry act, acted as a stand-in for the audience. Um, so I had to explain something until Barry understood it. And then uh, th- then we felt we had something that the, the target audience would understand. So, yeah, it's been a, it, it's been such a positive experience that we decided uh, to, to, to do another one. We actually started work on a third book already. So... Um, really, nothing but uh, but good things to say about the overall experience. You mentioned uh, that there were some things that you you came into the book believing and you didn't believe by the time you got to the end. Uh, can we get an example? Yeah, well, one thing was that uh, the 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 method that I always used in game to calculate the um, the the value of the bounty essentially, mm-hmm. uh, which was to convert it into chips. Uh, um, as I got well into it, I realized that that wasn't the best way to 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 do it. Um, um, and we, we developed a completely different method for evaluating how much we needed to adjust our calling ranges uh, or our ranges in general, um, given the bounty or how how significant the bounty is. Um, that that was probably the big one. Um, I'm curious thing. to look at that because I had this argument with a lot of people who were, I mean, frankly, better tournament players than I am. I essentially like ended up taking their word for it. Where I was sort of like that, that process of just converting them to chips seems like it's leaving out a lot. And a is, lot yeah. of people like poo pooed that to the point where I was like, oh, I guess, I guess that's how you do it. Um, yeah, no, so it really it's is. Kind of hard to uh, say that. Yeah, I, th- I think it made sense in 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 the non-progressive bounty tournaments, uh, which were which which obviously preceded uh, the progressive chaos that we have now. But uh, but yeah, it's a very blunt instrument, um, and in fact, we ended up barely describing it in the book uh, because in, to 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 our mind, it's not. Um, it's really not all that useful. Uh, there's another method we describe in the book using two concepts called uh, bounty factor and bounty discount, which actually gets you much closer to the reality and is much, much easier to implement in game uh, than having to divide chip stacks by starting stacks and work multiply by bounties, etc. So, um, 
I think that'll be a few of the people who read the pre-book, they said that was their biggest takeaway from the book. Uh, and that's heartening because that was something where we changed our mind as, as the book went on. Um, there was other stuff as well too, uh, on, for example, how you should play when you're short stacked, uh, cause you're kind of in a bind when you're short stacked, you know, you're getting called more, um, because of your own bounty but on the other hand it's terrible to be short stacked in a in a in a bounty tournament to not be able to win any bounties at your table so you have an incentive to both tighten up and loosen up and it's a question of balancing those two and as i ran lots of simulations i realized that essentially what happens is uh it's not that the frequency of your opens or shoves changes it's just that the shape of the range changes and uh um, that 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 was a big uh, learning point for me as well. When you say ran simulations, what does that look like? Um, basically, I used Holden Resources Calculator. The the, the preflop simulators became um, bounty aware in the last. I, I, I'm not sure when it started, but they're certainly bounty aware now. Where you can actually say this is a bounty tournament. This is the amount of bounty this player has. Uh, this is the amount that's in the bounty pool in general, and the number of players are left. And then it will adjust the ranges accordingly um, based on and, how and significant it, the it gives that right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so like initially, uh, initially, at least the version of HRC that I had, it wasn't that wasn't possible. So I was working from first principles and using spreadsheets to calculate bounty equivalent values and so on. But as soon as HRC came in, I was able to run literally hundreds and hundreds of simulations and started to spot patterns. Um, and that's, that, that's what ended up being in the book rather than the, the, the early work on uh, sort of boring hand by hand conversion of uh, bounties into chip amounts. But like, how does, how does HRC calculate that? Um, essentially what it does, well, I mean, obviously it's really only going to be accurate where both players are all in. Um, but essentially what it does is it works out the additional equity, uh, value of the bounty. So let's imagine, you know, normally when somebody shoves all in and with dead money in the pot, if you're considering a call, uh, you, you need something in the region of 46% equity to call. So it's, you're, you know, it's small blind against big blind, say, so it comes down to, does 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 this particular hand have forty six percent equity against that range? Now, HRC will add the if you cover the small blind, will add the additional value of the bounty. Um, and but I guess that, that that's what I'm asking. Like, how does it determine what that is? Like that that's I feel like that's the thing you're trying to solve for. Is like what is that bounty worth? So like how does how does HRC compute that? That's a really good question. Um, uh, the the one thing I would say is that I checked all of the. When, when when the first version of HRC came out, I checked by hand myself with the with my own computations, and it always uh, matched up. But I don't actually know what the inter- what the internal process is, how they how it, how it works that stuff out. Because um, like part of, part of what I've I've wondered about is, um, you know, s- suppose you have maybe uh, everyone else at the table has X, and you have one point two X, you know, and and somebody shoves. Like you, 
you, you, you can factor like you are going to win their bounty if, if you call and win, but calling and losing means you lose the ability to collect bounties from anyone yeah. else, and like, you're pretty far away from being able to collect bounties from anyone else, and that doesn't seem like a trivial thing for HRC to, to factor in. Yeah, I don't think HRC factors that in at all, in fact. I think it, it just converts the, the bounty to an actual amount uh, of equity and then adds that equity to the equity that's being offered uh, on the call. I don't think it takes that future equity. And actually, that's something we talk about in the book. When you do cover people, um, if you have a spot where the maths would seem to indicate you just about have a break-even call, but but calling and losing will suddenly uh, mean you cover nobody at the table, that's a spot you should pass. On the other hand, if you have a spot where you're, where you're say, the second shortest stack and the shortest stack shoves, um, you're incentivized for two reasons to call, maybe even a little bit wider than the mats of the bounty would indicate. Uh, first of all, that's the only bounty you can win. So this mm -hmm. might be your best shot uh, at some bounty equity on that table. But secondly, if you do win, then you if, if it might leapfrog you over some other stacks. And an important concept as well is to keep an eye on the, on the size of the bounties. Because as you go deep into PKOs, there will be people with relatively short stacks who have almost no bounty and they're not really a consideration then but you level the people maybe with a relatively short stack who have a significant bounty and you want to engineer a situation if you already cover that player where you continue to cover them so that you're competing for that bounty uh, in future hands but if you don't cover them you're more incentivized to take um, possibly slightly minus ev gambles at now so that you will cover them if you win the hand but I don't think that stuff can be quantified, to be honest. That's mm. just, that's 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 like very feel much that. feel. So if if a person walked into a PKO tournament and they understood the rule, you know, like they they knew how bounties worked, uh, and they were like a decent poker player, but they had never uh, played a PKO tournament before. They haven't read your book. They haven't really like thought or studied a PKO strategy. What do you think they'd be likely to get wrong? In my experience, it tends to go one of two ways. Uh, ha uh, half of them go, well, I don't understand this bounty thing, so I'm just going to play my normal game, and if I win bounties, I'll treat that as a as a as a bonus. Mm -hmm. um, and I've that's seen a lot of that. yeah, that's pretty bad uh, because you, that's now we're back to the analogy of you're playing a split pot game and you're only competing for half the pot. Um, then at the other end of the spectrum, some people just go absolutely bounty crazy and they seem to think that bounties are the only thing that matter. Um, and one of the um, one of the difficult things, I guess, about bounties is that the the significance of the bounties changes over the course of the tournament. It's act, it's it's they're obviously very significant at the start because everybody starts with the same stack, and if you if you take somebody's bounty, you've won a quarter of a buy-in, so that's pretty hefty. Um, by the time you get down to the last two tables or the final table, the the bounty amounts will seem quite large. Uh, and people sometimes think, oh, now the bounties are really worth chasing. But actually, uh, when you break down the maths, the, the, the ICM uh, implications become much more important at that point, and the bounties start to fade away. Um, so at that stage, you kind of do revert back to playing not exactly like a normal um, MTT at that stage, but, but, but something similar. And... That's something that people sometimes get wrong as well. They just see a relatively large bounty um, and think they have deep on, late on in a tournament, they have to take all sorts of um, very marginal spots to try and win that bounty. 
Um, and I've heard some like fake heuristics as well, like compare the size of the bounty to the next pay jump and so on. And none, none of these things have any real um, merit to them. Uh, they're sort of like common sense uh, ideas that don't really um, map very well onto the maths of the situation. I've looked at a lot of PKO final tables and it's very rare that the bounty uh, plays a significant uh, part in any decision unless somebody gets ridiculously short um, and and they have a significant bounty. Because hmm. I guess the other thing that I've I mean, not just heard, I mean, it's true. <laughs> like the bounties are, uh, PKO tournaments are much more top heavy than a typical tournament because you are collecting... Um, you know, you're you're collecting your own bounty, which ends up being quite large usually if yeah. you're winning the the tournament. Um, so I would think that that would also make ICM somewhat less of a factor if you're just a lot more incentivized to play for first. Yeah, this is true. You are you're a lot more incentivized to play for first. Although the the online sites have kind of realized this when 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 PKO started online, they had sort of regular payout structures for first with more than second, etc. Now almost every major site um, actually first and second prize are the same. So you're really just paying for the bounties at that point. Now, the bounty still will be very significant. So it still ends up being more top-heavy than a regular tournament. But at least that factor has been offset somewhat by this adjustment that the sites have made. But yeah, that's... That post-dates my playing on PokerStars. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it's... uh, A party actually, I think, introduces innovation or or possibly Winamax before them uh, because PKOs came out of Winamax. Uh, They were their invention. Um, and stars have fallen in line now, and pretty much all the sites have. Yeah, I, I mean, it used to be insane. You look at the Thursday Thrill, and like, you know, f- first prize was 10,000, second prize was 6,000, and they were paying for 10,000 in bounties as well. So effectively, the, the heads up was like 20,000 versus 6,000. Um, it's insane. Nate, any PKO questions before I change the subject? I mean, many, but uh, <laughs> you have asked the relevant ones already, and um, I don't know. I think what Dara said is a pretty amazing pitch for the book. Like, oh, I was already beating these things, and I thought I was pretty good, but then I spent a year running Sims, and then I wrote what I learned in the book. And it's not everything, but boy, is it a lot, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to play another PKO like, until I read this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well... Well done as a salesman and, uh, and, and and as an author. Thank you very much. So I know you're uh, a, a David Bowie super fan, and I'm I'm I mean, I I saw that there was uh, this this concert that they uh, recently aired. They played in uh, in Glastonbury. It seemed to be a big deal, but I, I didn't know why. What, what was the like cultural significance of this concert? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because uh, I mean, it's an old concert. Uh, it was from two thousand. Um, it's from the Glastonbury Festival, which is a, the most iconic festival, arguably, in Europe. So it's the only time Bowie ever headlined that particular festival. Um, he had played it earlier in 1971, right at, right at the start of his career, before he was very, very well known. But he was so far down the bill that actually most people were sleeping when uh, when he went on to do his set. Uh, th- this was a very different experience. It was sort of like a triumphant return Um uh, because obviously he moved out of the UK um, uh, in the 70s, actually. Um, and so this was kind of seen as a triumphant return of the UK's finest um, rock star uh, at the time. And then the concert itself was uh, was really good um, and also a crowd pleaser in terms of the sort of songs he chose to perform. But to be honest, I feel that the biggest reason for the reaction was just sort of... Uh, 
lockdown. Right. <laughs> people, people were stuck in and everybody's watching TV at the same time. And uh, this just happened to be what they all watched. Um, um, this used to be a much more common phenomenon of like there was a big thing on TV and everybody watched it. And that has not been a thing in, in our culture for some time now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. Like, I remember when I was growing up, I mean, in Ireland at the time, we only had two, two TV channels. Uh, and in fact, when I was really young, we only had one TV channel. Uh, so, you know, you either watched the program that was on RTE1 or the program that was on RTE2. And when you went to school <laughs> the next day, everybody was talking about it. And I remember the importance of programs of, like, when I was growing up, um, stuff like Dallas, that that had a massive cultural impact and a lot of that was just down to the market being less dif less diffuse than it is now um, and everybody sort of watching at the same time so everybody would watch the episode on Thursday or whatever day the show aired and then on Friday at work and at schools everybody would be talking about that episode so there was a much more sort of shared cultural uh, phenomenon um, and I think lockdown has kind of brought that back in a sense uh, in that people now obviously the entertainment um options are are limited and yeah the B i think the bbc did a really good job of sort of thinking okay well, what might be a crowd pleaser and uh, and and rebroadcasting those particular uh concerts i know this can be a tough thing to put into words but you're pretty good at putting things into words uh why is bo so significant to you yeah it's uh, it, it it is actually quite difficult um, because um, for a start I was I was eighteen before I think I was conscious of having heard Bowie, um, but he became a, a, a massive cultural icon for me. I think most Bowie fans would say that the thing that they sort of um, identified most with Bowie was sort of his overall his overarching themes of, were of sort of outsiders. Uh, alienation in general, um, rather than the sort of, uh, you know, um, let's say the hippie culture where it was all about it. Oh, we all love each other and uh, everybody feels great and we're all connected and we're all we're all in jokes. But but Bowie came from a much more sort of like the human condition as the uh, uh, as outsider. Um, and I think that's something which resonated with a lot of people, including me, um, who at certain points of our life did feel quite alienated from society um, outside of it all. Um, and having somebody express those sort of ideas, which really weren't expressed that much in um, pop music and rock music. Um, I think that's really what sort of distinguished him. Yeah, and that was something I really didn't appreciate until after he died, or at least very late in his um in his life, like how much he represented, like there was a lot of things that in retrospect, I was like, Oh, that's a David Bowie song. That's a David Bowie song. Yeah. But I just, it really wasn't that much on my, it was a name that I knew very well, but he just, he wasn't one of the people that I listened to all that much. And I mean, it seems now like when you talk about those, the themes of sort of alienation or just like weirdness in general um, yeah. is something that I am very like, that is very much my aesthetic, but uh, I just, you know, at, at the time I, for whatever reason, didn't, uh, didn't appreciate it for what it was. Yeah, and you touch on something else there, which is just the sheer number of great songs he wrote. Um, like, I would argue there's pretty much no other artist who... I mean, that, that concert in Glastonbury, he performed 20 or 30 songs. But, like, people said afterwards, you could have picked another 20 or 30 songs. <laughs> um, and it would have been better than most people's greatest taste catalogs. Uh, mm. it's, it's just a sheer 
uh, just how, how many songs he wrote over his career um, uh, that that really sort of uh, got right through to the center of the culture. I mean, even songs that weren't very big hits at the time, like Heroes, uh, which is now one of the most iconic songs, famously flopped at the time and uh, and, and 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 was panned in the music press as a, a, a as, as washed up and desperate. Uh, and this is 1978, so <laughs> even e- e- even. I think over the course of his career, um, particularly obviously in the earlier stages, but even towards the end, I mean, he, when he came back in 2012, um, just having not done anything for nine years and with absolutely no hullabaloo, just dropped uh, a new single. That was such an important cultural moment as well, I think. Um, and such an amazing song, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the thing was as well, like he, he never really settled on his laurels. I think a lot of... Um, Artists, particularly in, in in the music industry, they just reach a point where they have sort of a, have a greatest hit set list, and then they just tour that for the rest of their lives. Um, but he always had this sort of um, restlessness artistically, where even at the end on his last album, he was making a sort of a discordant jazz album, essentially. Mm-hmm. What do you think happens when uh, we're at a funny place now, right? Sort of connecting a couple things you said where there are fewer focal experiences, but we still have people who were famous from back when there were focal experiences. Um, so like David Bowie's dead now and sort of one by one, you know, these people are, are, are dying off. And as I like to say, you know, Michael Jordan is either the most famous or the second most famous basketball player in the world right now. Right. Yeah. Um, what, where do you think this goes like in 10 years when the stock of famous people in the sense that like, you know, old geezers like you and me think of as famous, uh, what, what, what happens then? What, how, how is the world different? Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely interesting to think about. And to be honest, I have no clear answer, but the way we're going, the, the, the trend, uh, certainly this, this century has been that all markets have tended to get more and more diffuse. Um, it's much easier to put stuff out, uh, whether it's music or, or books, for example. I mean, uh, we, we, we self-published our, our, our books. Um, it's much easier to put stuff out, but then because it's, it's so easy to put stuff out, there's more of it out there. And it's very, it's very hard for any individual book or artist or song to have the same sort of impact as, as when there were less of them around. But I do still feel there's this sort of like yearning for shared cultural moments and shared cultural experiences. Um, it tends to be driven by technology. Uh, and this is something that Bowie used to talk about a lot as well, he, that, that people tended to think of art as separate from technology, but really technology drove art. I mean, the reason why the music industry became the dominant cultural form was because of the rise of vinyl and then later on cassettes and CDs. And then once music slipped into this, something we can just share online now, um, it seems to have faded in, in, in cultural significance. And then that's, that was very much driven by the technology. So I think it probably depends on how the technology goes. I mean, we're seeing the same thing in TV where Netflix is essentially revolution and the other streaming services have essentially revolutionized the way TV is not just consumed, but also the way TV is made. Um, uh, so it probably really depends on on what technology is coming down the line. But I do think there is a yearning to sort of have these shared cultural moments again. We do feel, I think we have lost something by becoming um, much more diffuse. 
Yeah, me too. I think we've lost something, but collective action is hard. Like a lot of us yeah. want world peace also. And a lot of us want to, like, I would happily learn, I mean, pick any language. I mean, yeah, politically dicey thing. Let's say we all decided <laughs> to learn the same second language, you know, like if I could be confident that everybody else was doing it, I'd learn any language in the world. Right. Um, yeah. But these things are, are hard. And like a lot of people, if, if they could, you know, if you plop them back in 1993 and had them choose between Seinfeld and their favorite thing on Netflix, like they wouldn't want the focal experience of Seinfeld. They'd rather have their favorite thing on Netflix. That's, that's yeah. the whole point. Like it's not just because, I mean, people want a lot of things. Uh, collective action is hard. We're probably not going to get focal experiences of the sort that you describe again. Um, yeah, I think probably the nearest we get to them these days is probably the the one area which has changed the least is sports. Um, yeah. Sports just still create these mass vocal experiences, uh, whether it's the Super Bowl, the World Cup, the Olympics, whatever. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the enduring appeals of sports. Um, is for me. It's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even those, some of them are like this is like a coronavirus thing. It's not clear to me that baseball is ever going to really, really, really come back. Like League of legends is still out there. Uh, <laughs> like my nephews do not seem to care about baseball very much and they didn't before. And they sure as hell don't now, I think. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm worried. I'm a worried old man. I'm a worried old man. <laughs> I mean, is this, is the world without focal experiences that we remember? Is it a world where people are just not as happy as as you and I are, or is it people where old geezers like you and me, or is it a world like every other world where old people like us just fundamentally don't understand where the new generation finds happiness and how? Yeah, I mean, the, the, they're all very good questions, and to be honest, I, d I don't know the answers. I do feel we lose something, though, for sure, uh, in terms yeah. of focal experiences, and, 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 and one thing, I think you see it in other areas, too, like in politics, where it's much, at least this is my impression, it's it's much rarer now to, to, to find an actual rational discussion between people with different views. Um, it seems to have almost everybody's gone into their own little pigeonhole and and retreated down to their own tribe and they they have the, the, the views of the tribe and there's very little actual political discourse anymore. It's almost uh, like a sports experience of people chanting slogans. I think that's the danger of it, where it sort of becomes well everybody chooses themselves what they want in every single area and the choice is massive um and mm. that 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 then bleeds into other areas where i think there's a lot to be said for um uh sort of being able to talk things out uh, and, ha and and having consensus on a lot of things in society rather than just everybody having their own individualistic view um ireland i think even still, it's quite, a, by comparison to most countries, it's quite a consensus culture. You know, you take any social issue or any major economic issue and a significant majority of the population will largely agree on it, maybe slight differences in opinion uh, on some of the details. But in other countries in Europe, around Europe, you see this more polarization. No, the, the US is pretty much like that, too. Uh, po uh, polarized. <laughs> No, yeah, I, I was, I was joking. Oh, joking yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel qualified to uh, to, to comment on the US, but it does, certainly from the outside, uh, it does seem. But then, you know, maybe that's just the, the, the people who make the most noise on Twitter, who knows um, what, what, what the reality is. Uh, you guys ha have a much better sense of that. But I do feel that this sort of um, 
retreat to the extremes and both extremes are shouting at each other and that's 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 not good for humanity long term I, um, I, I do try to be skeptical of myself in, in the way that, uh, that that you said, Nate, of like the, the old guy perspective. Because I mean, it's like I, I fully agree with the like we're losing something or we've lost something. Like I think that's true in any like transition. It's just easier for it's easier for the old people to appreciate what's lost and harder for us to appreciate what's gained. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I definitely have my like eye rolly reactions to. Um, or not even eye roll necessarily, just the like shrug of confusion to like I don't know TikTok or just like other just various other like probably some of the stuff I've not even heard of and like it, I mean it does seem vacuous to me some of it um, I don't know, like parts of YouTube culture or something like it, it's not that they don't seem vacuous to me it's just that I try to be like suspicious of my own view that it's <laughs> vacuous because I know that that's like has always been the case that like whatever the new cultural form is and, you know people are just going oh well this is this is it this is the end yeah yeah that's that, that's definitely true but I mean sometimes sometimes they are just um Sometimes they are just shit. <laughs> but but uh, if you find yourself thinking everything new is shit, I think that's when you have to start worrying. Um, but but I think it's okay to be selective. I mean, uh, somebody tried to get me on TikTok recently, and I downloaded it on my phone, and I poked around. I literally couldn't work out what it was for. I was like, <laughs> I don't understand this. And, uh, I mean, the horrifying thing is I was somebody who came from an IT background, and I was involved in the sort of early days of the internet, and I was there when the internet started to become a mass thing, and I understood all of the reasons why certain things caught on and certain things didn't. Um, but now I, do, now I do feel like a bewildered old man sometimes when I, <laughs> when I come face-to-face -face with some of the new stuff. But, you know, I, I just looked at the title of the show. Turns out it's about poker. Uh, <laughs> you know what's great? You know what's great? It's 2020. And, you know, right now there's a pandemic. Uh, but before the pandemic, it was 2020. And I could go to the casino and sit down at a table. And I still got Ronder's quotes all, all the time. It was still Ronder's mm -hmm. quotes consistently. And they're still great. And uh, so, you know, how many years later? Uh, yeah. rounders still a major focal thing for the poker world and that's awesome yeah yeah that's for sure yeah it's amazing how much that hasn't been supplanted like not that it's not good but i don't think it's definitive like i think there's there's room for more um like big poker things in in popular culture and i'm surprised that they have not uh that they haven't come around yet yeah it is i mean i think poker is very difficult to translate into um into into sort of cinematic form i mean it's, it's much the same reason why there's not too many great films about what it's like to be a great writer it's pretty boring watching somebody sitting at a typewriter writing uh it's just a lot of the stuff with poker it's i think it's actually quite difficult to convey and rounders did an amazing job i think of showing different archetypes and sort of getting some sort of understanding of of the appeal of the game but um usually when poker is in in a movie it's uh it's frankly nonsense and um but it's, uh, it's and, and then i think also you know that was when rounders came out it was just before the boom obviously um so the timing was good in that sense like my my memory is that rounders didn't have that big of an impact uh, on its initial release but no, okay. I don't think it did. I think it was more of like a cult classic. Yeah, it became a cult classic afterwards because it was the most recent movie and by far the best poker movie, obviously, at that point. So, uh, And I still don't know that it is. I mean, obviously, it's like huge in the poker world. I don't know that it has like huge cultural significance outside of that. 
I don't think it has, to be honest. Um, if I spoke to my non-poker friends, I doubt any of them have even heard of the movie. Uh, I'll bet. That's a bet if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would take the over on that, but I, I don't think the cultural sin there. Like, I think the there there's room for something else. Even even if there, if there was something else that kind of only spoke to people who had a kind of rounders level of interest in poker, like the, the same sort of people that rounders would speak to. Like, I think there's there's room to make something else about. Yeah poker that has that level of but i mean because among other things just like i don't think router speaks that much to the current poker experience you know it, it's very much about that sort of hustling underground you know where a lot of the um a lot of what it meant to be a professional is just like getting into a game in the first place and sort of getting financing and just like a lot of things that the poker world has like problems the poker world has largely solved since that movie came out. Not that that culture doesn't exist at all, but it's a much smaller part of you know a typical professional player's experience now than it was then. Um, and I think there's other like interesting drama in the poker world besides just the kind of underworld and cheating and uh, you know owing people money and and that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess one of the problems is just that since Rounders came on, came out, so much of the scene moved to online. Um, and online poker is even more difficult to portray yeah. uh, in, in, in any compelling manner. Um, so, yeah, that seems like a problem. I also, like, didn't we just answer this question? Rounders was released back when there were focal experiences, like, back <laughs> right. before the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but like there's, I mean, there's stuff, and I mean, maybe it'll be Maria Konnikova's book. But I mean, there, I think there are still things that any any poker interested person, well, even when the movie is like widely agreed to be shit, like I feel like most poker players will still watch like Lucky You or whatever, just because it is a poker movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, that's another bet if you want it. Like, go to the casino. <laughs> how many people saw Lucky You? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot I mean, of them I, were... I have a general rule of not prop betting against you because you're better yeah. at it than I am, but I am curious to hear what your number would be. <laughs> like an ordinary nine-handed table. But also like Lucky You, that was like that was when I lived in Arizona, I think. That yeah, was no, 2000. That, 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 that was that was the year the iPhone was released. I think like the iPhone and Lucky You came out at like approximately the same time. <laughs> okay? So like you're you are so fucking old, man. <laughs> so- <laughs> this hip new mo- poker movie. Lucky have you seen it, guy? Have you seen it, guys? Yeah, I, I mean the like technology advances so over fast. Over and over again. Oh man, oh man. It reminds me of like uh, like the Papa John's guy. Like wasn't like the it was a conference call that was supposed to be about his own like bad behavior and how he was going to improve it. I think I think that was the conference call on which he used the N word. <laughs> And like, I mean, not that what you're doing is is like that at all, but like in terms <laughs> of, <laughs> but in terms of like sort of, uh, I feel like you're doing a lot of the work for me when I'm arguing <laughs> like, in the argument. How about that? How about that? <laughs> so, uh, for about an hour. Rounders is great anyway. <laughs> What's uh, um, what, what's the new book about? Are you allowed to tell us yet? Though I mean, the one you said you just started working on is that public information. <laughs> no, it's not because Barry Barry's convinced somebody will beat us to the punch if we do. Uh, I, I might be that person, so you're probably making a mess. Might very well be. I fit, so I feel, I, 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 I definitely say myself. The, the, the other possibility is we might change our mind. Um, 
we're not we're not we're not as a hundred percent sure on, on on the topic as we are as as we were last time. So yeah, it's probably better if I keep it quiet. Also, it just might never come out, and then I'll have people hassling me in three years saying, "I oh, just listened to Thinking Poker that that hip new podcast," and uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> you were talking yeah. about your turtle. <laughs> When's that coming out? Uh, so PKO Poker Strategy, Amazon is the best place to get that? Amazon is the only place to get it right now. Um, okay. uh, yeah, um, not that we, uh, we we particularly love Amazon or anything, but it's just the easiest to get it up on quickly. And um, uh, yeah, but, um, I mean, that's all That's all Barry's end of the thing. He, he, that, he that's another thing he sold me on was how, um, how amazingly easy it now is to self-publish on Amazon. I mean, it's amazing. It's a game changer uh, because, first of all, it's easy. Secondly, uh, and uh, we spoke to Mason Malmuth recently, and he said that Amazon give their give authors a bigger cost of the book than most publishers make uh, in total. Um, so uh, that's that, that that's a huge thing. I mean, we've seen an absolute explosion of books, and I think it's driven by Amazon. If you had a book which was probably only going to sell a couple of th- thousand copies, um, you know, 20 years ago. Good luck finding a publisher uh, who, who's willing to do that. Um, and even if you did, you'd make almost no money on it, so it wouldn't be worth your while producing the book. Now, with the way Amazon have changed it, if your book sells a few thousand copies, it is actually financially uh, viable for you to put some time into that. Um, and you, you see now with just the number of new books that are coming out. Um, some frightening figure. Somebody told me that almost half of the books ever produced have been written, have been published in the last year. Uh, we're uh, doing our part. Sorry? I said, we're doing our part, you and I. We're certainly doing our part, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's also just the immediacy. Like, um, you know, when I was a kid uh, and writing was something that I was interested in, so I sort of was aware of how publishing worked it was like if you wrote your book and and then you sent it off to the publisher and even if it was accepted it might be a year before you saw it uh barry and i literally finished the book on i think it was monday of last week and it was up on amazon by wednesday mm-hmm. um so uh that's that sort of um in a in in a world increasingly drawn to instant gratification that's 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 good too i think Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you know, good luck with the, the the old book and the new book and the the book in progress. Anything else you want to leave us with? Yeah, no, thank you. It's a real pleasure. I mean, you you guys took my podcast virginity way way back to around twenty fourteen uh, in the poker world. Uh, I had done some running podcasts before, but uh, and um, you guys have a just. I'd like to pay tribute to how. First of all, how long you've gone on, and the incredible high standards you've kept. Um, obviously, when David and I got into the chip ra- into the chip race, we discovered just how difficult actually it is. It's a lot more difficult than it looks. Um, I think you guys have very much set the sort of standard for keeping uh, the quality really, really high in terms of the content. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we we have like one quarter, not even one quarter of your shows. I don't think, and we're already scratching our head, thinking like, well, who could we get on next uh that's why we just keep bringing back guests from 2014 <laughs> we've started to do that too yeah most most of our guests are repeats now at this stage but um yeah no it's 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 the one podcast that i listen to that i download onto my uh my ipod every day that it comes out on the day it comes out to to, to take with me on my run um so yeah keep that up guys um you really do you do amazing work you guys are the original uh 
goats in this field and this is a field which has exploded in in recent years um but uh, yeah you, you you guys were the trailblazers it means a lot it means a lot I, I honestly sincerely thank you yeah thanks very much all right have a good night boys yep you too cheers guys of a car, the the passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't.